Tuesday and Wednesday at 7 o'clock. And this morning, uh, Justin Lewis was planning to go ahead and introduce our speaker, our revival speaker for the week. And uh, he wanted to make sure that everyone was aware that this is a relative of Justin's. And so uh, he, he didn't tell me to say that part, but it is a relative of Justin's. We have Seth Amering here this morning, and we're excited to see where God is going to be moving in our hearts, what he wants to share with us. And as God speaks through Seth this week, we want to be open to the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. Seth is married to Leah, and they have three boys, Charlie, Anthony, and Jack. Seth is a graduate of Kentucky Christian University and has his master's from Cincinnati Bible. Currently, he's a senior preacher at Rock Lane Christian Church in Indiana. And this morning, I want to draw your attention to uh, our Paradise Valley Christian Church Info website, pvcc.info, and on that location, on that site, uh, it'll have a spot that says Revival, All Things Revival, and uh, you can go on there, you can see a little bit more in-depth bio of Seth this morning, but then also there's a place to take notes, and then there's also a Sunday morning sermon uh, outline and that sort of thing, and so we want to give you as many tools as possible this morning for God to be speaking into your life. And so this morning, will you give God a round of applause as Seth comes and shares with us? Hey, is it going to mess anything up if I come down here? Is that going to be okay? Okay. I'm sorry that I'm related to Justin. Just try not to think about that. Just try to put that out of your mind, and we'll get along just fine. My name is Seth Amarine, and I've been trying to lose weight since 2010. Pray for me. I've done a lot of different things. I've tried the Adkins diet. Has anybody done that? You just eat meat <laughs> and butter. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a good diet? I've tried the Adkins diet. I've tried the Daniel plan. I've tried Weight Watchers a few times. I did intermittent fasting, which I'm pretty sure the devil came up with. I've done Whole30. On all these diets, I lost a little bit of weight and was doing real good, and then I got tired of it, right? Why do I have to put myself through this and gain it all back? Finally, in 2015, I did a diet called Take Shape for Life, and I lost 42 pounds. Gained it back in two years. Here's the point. Listen, here's the point. I am more committed to my appetite than I am to my health. I'm working on it, but that's true. It's the truth. This is Beatrice and Etley Hester. They were members of were members of my church growing up in Ashland, Kentucky. I remember two things about B and Etley. First thing I remember is that Beatrice had Parkinson's disease, so she was very weak. She was very uh, shaky. Uh, she needed a lot of help, and I remember vividly watching Etley patiently and lovingly caring for her and her every need. The second thing I remember about B and Etley is the day that they died. May 11th, 1997, in the middle of the night, a fire started in their home. And the next morning, their bodies were found in the living room, five feet from the front door. Etley had been trying to carry Beatrice. His hand was reaching out, five feet from the front door. The thing that's always struck me about that is Etley was a big, strong man. 
He could have gotten out just fine. But Beatrice didn't stand a chance. And so when he realized the house was on fire, I'm sure it wasn't even a choice for him. In his mid to late 70s, he lifted her up off the bed and he tried desperately to carry her to safety. I have often wished that I could go back to their wedding day, knowing what I know now, and look at Etley and watch him say to his beautiful bride, until death do us part, and mean it. I came here today all the way from Indianapolis. That's what the cop was shocked at when he gave me a ticket yesterday. (laughs) We'll talk about that later this week. (laughs) I came here all the way from Indianapolis to ask you this question. Are you devoted to Jesus like I am devoted to losing weight? Or like Etley was devoted to Beatrice? Are you devoted to Jesus Christ like I am to losing weight? Or like Etley was to Beatrice? You know where the fastest growing church in the world is? I just saw this in the news recently. Iran, the fastest growing church, not the biggest church, but the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran, where Christianity is very much illegal, punishable in the worst ways possible. One Christian woman who lives in Iran is quoted as saying this, and and I quote, We know that if they get us, think about this, we know that if they get us, the first thing they will do to us as a woman is rape us, and then they will beat us, and then they will ultimately kill us. This is the decision we have made, that we want to offer our bodies as sacrifices. Because I have this thought when I wake up, that when I leave that door, I might not come back. End quote. The church in Iran owns no property, and they have no central leadership They are primarily led by women, and they're the fastest growing church in the world. Do you know where the fastest shrinking church in the world is? United States of America. Somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 churches will close their doors this year. 65 to 75% of young adults raised in the church will walk away from the faith. Before the Vietnam War... There was an estimated 75,000 Christians in Vietnam. When the Viet Cong came, they brutalized Christians, beating them, killing them. In some places, they would literally crucify preachers, elders, and Sunday school teachers to the outsides of their church buildings, jamming a crown of thorns on their heads. After the war was over, people went back to Vietnam to find out how many Christians were left. If there were any left, there were over 900,000. I read an article not too long ago about people trying to start house churches in a certain Muslim country where the penalty for Christianity is death. In a matter of three years, they started 150,000 house churches. I've read that the largest church in the world is in China where Christianity is illegal. And yet here in the land of the free, where it says, in God we trust on our currency, people are leaving Jesus Christ in droves, why do you suppose that is? You may be surprised to know that I have my own theory on that. I think that our problem is we believe in Jesus instead of believing Jesus. 
There's a big difference, isn't there? It is said that Edgar Allan Poe, the famous poet, believed in Christianity. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he never gave his life to Christ because he thought himself too awful a sinner. Jesus could never save him. So Poe believed in Jesus. He just didn't believe what Jesus said. He believed Jesus was who Jesus said he was. But when Jesus said, anyone who believes in me will never die, even though he dies. When Jesus said to anyone who comes to me, all who labor and weary, anyone who comes to me will find rest for their souls. He just didn't trust Jesus' words. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, you believe that there's one God good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. I think a lot of us believe in Christianity, but few of us actually believe Jesus when he speaks. In reality, we want the whole heaven deal in case there's a hell, but when things get risky, when things get real, we're going to trust our own instincts because, frankly, Jesus said some crazy things. What we're talking about here is powerfully summed up by one of the leaders of the underground church in Iran. He was explaining that their goal in Iran is not to plant churches, but rather to make disciples. And this is what he had to say, and I quote, Disciples forsake the world and cling to Jesus till he comes. Converts don't. Disciples aren't engaged in a culture war. Converts are. Disciples cherish, obey, and share the word of God. Converts don't. Disciples choose Jesus over anything and everything else. Converts don't. Converts run when the fire comes. Disciples don't, end quote. So let me ask you again. Are you devoted to Jesus like I am to losing weight? Or like Etley was to Beatrice? Christian women in Iran are willing to risk rape, beatings, and death for the gospel. The last two Sundays at my church in Indiana, attendance has been down significantly because the Colts game started at 1. I don't know. I'm so excited for Paradise Valley Christian Church. I love this Imagine More theme. I love Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Paul says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably, you can't even measure, like you can't comprehend how much more he can do than all we ask or imagine. The ESV says, think. He could do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine or think according to his power that is at work within us. You cannot measure how much more God can do through you. When I read this, I think of Moses. You think Moses thought, even at the burning bush, do you think he could ever have imagined the Red Sea splitting? Or when Jesus came and asked Peter, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Do you think Peter ever imagined walking on water? Do you think he ever imagined seeing a dead girl get up from the grave, from her deathbed? You think he ever imagined preaching the first gospel sermon and seeing 3,000 people give their lives to Christ? He could do so much more than you and I can ever imagine. And I want to tell you that God wants to use this congregation, this group of people, 
at Paradise Valley Christian Church to do immeasurably more than you can think or ask. It can mean so many things. God could use you all to change this county. He could use you all to change this state. He could use you to save young people from sex trafficking in Cambodia. He could use you to affect the life of a passerby one Sunday in such a way that they take the gospel wherever they're going. God will use you in ways that you know and ways that you don't know. But first, in order for God to do immeasurably more through you, first, you have to choose to believe everything Jesus says. No exceptions. No exceptions. We ought to talk for a moment about this word, believe. What you believe in affects the way you live. It affects your behavior. Ken Davis is a Christian preacher, and he tells a story of a persuasive speech he gave in college about the law of the pendulum. Does anybody know the law of the pendulum? I'll tell you. I'm so, I know, okay? It's okay if you don't know. Law of the pendulum is that if you have a weight suspended on a string and you hold it up at one place and you let it swing, it'll never come back to the place where you let go of it. As long as you don't put any force on it, you don't exert any force, you lift the pendulum up, you let it swing, it's going to fall a little bit shorter every time until eventually it stops swinging altogether. You with me? It's the law of the pendulum. It cannot, if it's just left to its own force, come back to the point from which you released it. And so to illustrate this law of the pendulum, he uh, moves all the tables and chairs out of the sides of the room, and he hangs 250 pounds of lifting weight by 500-pound climbing rope in the middle of the room, and he puts a chair on a desk on one side of the room, and he asks for a volunteer. The professor raises his hand. So he calls the professor up has the professor sit on a chair on a desk, and he brings all this weight right up to the guy's nose. And he asks him, do you believe the law of the pendulum? And he said, big beads of sweat broke out on the professor's lip. And he said, yes, I believe the law of the pendulum. Now think about this. This guy has a doctorate. He spent thousands of dollars learning about the law of the pendulum. He went and got a degree in physics, right? He's been teaching it for years, for decades, right? Of course he believes the law of the pendulum. Yes, I believe all the pendulum. So Ken Davis let go of all that weight. He said for a second, he thought, I'll push it. But he didn't. He just let it go. And it swung across the room, right? And it goes all the way. And before it even started coming back, that professor dove off of that chair. So let me ask you, did he believe the law of the pendulum? He said he did. Read about it, wrote about it, taught about it. But when push came to shove... What you believe affects your behavior. Jesus says, look, the faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. So why are so many churches closing in America? It all comes down to this. Do you believe Jesus enough to follow him rather than just root for him? And you may tell me today that you believe in Jesus. But would I be able to tell, I'm sorry, believe Jesus. But would I be able to tell by the way you live, by the way you think, if I saw the things you value most, the, thing you, the things you spend most of your resources on. With this in mind, today, over the next few days, I'm going to bring some things to you that many of us say we believe in, say we trust, but we don't really live like we believe in them. See, there are things that Jesus has told us that we would claim are central to our faith, but we have been tricked into thinking that we believe in them Sort of like that professor thought he believed in the law of the pendulum. Before we can imagine more, well, there's a few things that we have to trust. 
And this week, I'm going to share a few of those things with you. And this morning, here's the first one. We don't believe we're saved. We don't believe we're saved. This is a startling but profoundly accurate truth about churches today. I remember talking to an elder in my church, been an elder for 30 years, great guy, full of wisdom, loves the Lord, and he was going through a particularly hard time, and he was really down. And so in an effort to encourage him, I asked him, hey, you're still going to heaven, aren't you? Right? Still going to heaven. And you know what he said? I hope so. I said, you don't know. He said, I'm trying. I remember talking to a gentleman in my church, 42 years old. He had a really uh, troubling diagnosis. And he asked me, is God punishing me? Is God punishing me? I pointed him to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, where Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. This means your turn, right? So you got to pay attention because I do this. By his wounds we are healed. By whose wounds are we healed? Jesus' wounds. By ours? No. Jesus endured the punishment that your sins deserve. This is the gospel. No, he's not punishing you. I remember talking to someone about a big sin that they'd committed in their lives that they were still struggling with the shame and guilt from. I think many of us deal with this. And this is what they said to me one day in my office. They said, I know God has forgiven me, but I realize now I still need to forgive myself. I said, that's a lie from the devil. If God has forgiven you, hey, if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. You think that your forgiveness is more important than God's forgiveness? Your problem is not that you need to forgive yourself. Your problem is that you haven't accepted God's forgiveness yet. You don't believe you're saved. You may think this doesn't apply. Maybe you're sure that you're going to heaven. If you are, then two things are going to be true about you. Here's the first one. You don't hope that you'll make it to heaven. You know you're going to make it to heaven. The most unchristian response to the question, are you going to heaven, is I hope so, or worse yet, I'm trying. And the reason is you're calling Jesus a liar or a weak savior. You hope you're making it to heaven? Well, you think Jesus may not have meant it when he said whoever believes in, in the Son of God will... Not perish, but have eternal, last, uh, eternal whatever that verse says, John 3.16. That, that ruined a moment, didn't it? I do that too. Let me read you some powerful scriptures. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is, not therefore, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Not for those who don't sin anymore. It doesn't say there's no condemnation for those who are perfect spouses. Hallelujah. It doesn't say that there's no condemnation for those who meant it the first time they got baptized. It says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Jesus who knew no sin to be our sin so that in Jesus, in Jesus is the key part here, we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, 5, that was already read today. By his wounds we are healed. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does all this mean? Who does your salvation depend on? Jesus. Not you. Jesus came and he did something you couldn't do. He lived a perfect life. 
He never sinned. As a, as a human being, he never sinned. And then he takes his perfect righteousness and he says to you, I'm going to make you a trade. I'll give you my righteousness if you'll give me your sinfulness. And now we are the righteousness of God and Jesus is our sin. And then what did he do? He took it to the cross and he killed it. He killed it. It's gone. So when you're afraid that you're not good enough for heaven, you're really questioning Jesus' righteousness. Because if you're a Christian, you are the righteousness of God now. No matter how you feel, no matter how unfair that may seem, you have the righteousness of God. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. Verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Does that sound like somebody who hopes he's going to heaven? Or somebody who knows? I love 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. You are meant to know when you're not sure that you're saved, when you worry about whether or not you're good enough. What does that say about your trust in Jesus? How are you going to pass, how are you going to be a passionate follower of Christ, passionately sharing the gospel if you're not sure that the gospel saved you? One of my favorite passages is Matthew 11:28 where Jesus promises that everyone who comes to him, he will give them rest for their souls and peace. How can you have rest for your soul? How can you find peace with God if you're not even sure that he saved you? So the first thing that would be true of you if you're sure of your salvation is that you're going to you're going to know you're going to heaven not just hope you're going to heaven. Here's the second thing that will be true of you. You'll have nothing to lose here. You have nothing to lose here. Why do you think the Christian woman on Iran is willing to face likely rape, torture, and death for her faith? Because she hopes she might see Jesus one day when she dies? Or because she knows? Because she is 100% confident of where she where she already lives. You see, she truly believes Colossians 3.3. 3, For you, Christian, have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life's already gone. You've already died. In the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I'm sure we've all seen this movie, Indiana and his father, Sean Connery, because it had to be Sean Connery. Anyway, Sean Connery, Find the Holy Grail. This is the cup that Jesus drank out of. It is said in mythology that if you drink from this cup, you'll live forever. So it's a big deal. They find the cup. And I want to show you a clip from the movie where Indiana, Indiana's girlfriend, this is what I'm going to use to teach my boys about picking out their girlfriends, this scene, you know. She drops the grail into a great chasm, and she doesn't want to let it go. Give me your hand. Give me your other hand. 
I always count on Indiana Jones for a good sermon illustration. I love the fact that he has to turn his back on this cup and hold on to his father with both hands before he can be lifted up to true life. He had to let go. Seriously, if you're saved, then what can they take from you that you haven't already given away? What are they going to take? What if they what if they take your money? What if they take your home? What if they take your freedom? What if they take your life? And yet so many of us, myself included, get stressed out about our money and our rights. Do you understand what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross? You have nothing to lose. So here it is. How do you know, how do you know that you're saved? Because Satan doesn't want you to know. Satan wants you to be constantly unsure. He wants you to always be at the starting line of the race. But God wants you to be certain of it so that you can run the race and leave all other things behind. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it famously says, Paul famously says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of words, lest no man should boast. So you're saved by the grace of God, right? You're saved by his grace through faith, right? The way that you accept the gift of salvation is through faith. How do we express that faith? I have a dear friend who worries about his salvation. And so every, day, every Thursday at 2 o'clock we meet, and I try to convince him that he's saved. <laughs> if nothing else, it encourages me. <laughs> and one of the things I do often is I ask him four questions. He says, how do you know that I'm saved? And I ask him these four questions. Here's the first one. I say, do you believe Jesus? Do you believe Jesus is who he says he is, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, that he's a son of God? Yeah, I believe, I believe Jesus. And then I ask him, have you repented of your sins? That, that word repent, uh, it, it, doesn't, it means to turn around. And so believing isn't enough. Even the demons believe, like we've already read. But the demons don't follow Jesus. Do you follow Jesus? Have you recognized your sin, asked for forgiveness, and committed to turning around and following Jesus for the rest of your life? This doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. If we could be perfect, we wouldn't need Jesus, right? This means that you are committed to following Jesus even if you wander off the path, even if you stumble from time to time, upward steady progress, right, towards Christ. Have you repented of your sins? He said every day. I ask him, have you confessed your belief in Jesus? The Bible says that you will not be ashamed to say that Jesus is your Lord, to say that you believe that he rose again. You may be afraid to say it sometimes, but you'll say it because you're not ashamed to say it. And then I ask him, have you been baptized into Christ? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says baptism itself is not what saves you because it washes the dirt off your body. It's what you're saying when you're baptized. You are literally making an appeal to God. You're saying it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You're saying as you are going under the water, I'm giving my sinful self to Christ on the cross, letting it die and being risen a new creation as Jesus walked out of his grave. I said, have you been baptized? And I didn't have to wait for an answer on that one because I'm the one who baptized him. And I'll say, then you're saved. Then you're saved. You th- well, you think that these verses, that all the Bible verses that say, believe and you'll be saved, repent, you'll be saved, be baptized, what, you think they were made up? You think they don't mean what they say? What? Here's another thing you can do to maintain your faith in your own salvation. This is so good. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. I read this in a book not long ago. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. I have to set a reminder on my fancy Apple Watch to remind me every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to pick up my son Anthony from preschool, which is in the same building that I work in, or I will forget him. It's amazing how important reminders are. Remind yourself of the gospel every day. Maybe you can memorize some scriptures like John 3.16 or Isaiah 53. Maybe you make it a habit before you even set foot out of your bed in the morning to thank God for saving your soul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is trying to explain to the Corinthians why he was successful in spreading the gospel there. If you read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives this list of all the things he suffered for preaching the gospel. I was flogged and left for dead. I was beaten with rods and sticks. I was stoned. I was, you know, shipwrecked. And all these things happened because I preached the gospel. So whenever he came to a new place, he was scared because he didn't know how people were going to react, right? And so in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, when I came to preach the gospel to you guys, I was so scared I was trembling. He says, it wasn't me. Here's my secret. Here's how I got through the fear. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. This is my life verse. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All I did, I didn't think about what might happen to me. I didn't think about how you might react to my message. I didn't think about all the reasons why I should try a different place. I didn't think about anything but Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's why you read the gospel, not because of me, but because of my focus on Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. It's really amazing. When we turn our eyes on Jesus, the things of this world grow strangely dim. Last one. Every day, choose to believe Jesus. Make the choice to trust Jesus over and over again every single day. Trust Jesus over everyone else. Trust Jesus over yourself. Make this choice like Etley chose to say to Beatrice until death do us part. Because on those days, on the days where you choose to believe Jesus, God's going to do more through you than you will ever know or imagine. Please stand. I'm going to pray, and we're going to have an invitation time. If anyone needs to, has a decision to make, you need to talk or pray, Tommy's going to be, or Charles is going to be up here, uh, uh, and would be happy to talk with you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. God, forgive us. Forgive us when we doubt the very basic truth that you saved our souls. 
God, I pray that we would trust not just that Jesus is your son, but trust that Jesus means what he says. Trust that the the truth of the gospel is true for us too. So that we can really start to make a difference in the world around us. Give us that reckless faith, God, that has abandoned all things of this world and embraced you with both hands, with all we have. We'll forever pray in Jesus' name, amen.